Hi and welcome to Epicenter. My name is Brian Crane. My name is Meher Roy. Today we did, I think, our third episode on Polkadot. You know, we've done some over the years, but of course, like as with many blockchain projects, it takes a long time for those to come about. And now finally Polkadot is live. So we had Dieter Fischbein on from the Web3 Foundation and Joe Petrovsky from Parody to dive into various things about Polkadot, especially about the economics and the parachain leasing and, you know, some of these interesting interesting features that Par- that Polkadot has. Now, you should also here, so disclaimer that, you know, with Course 1, we are currently running Polkadot Validator. So just be aware of that. Uh, and of course, if you do have dots and want to stake, then you can do so with us. So if you want to learn more about that, just go to course one. So that's C-H-O-R-U-S dot one. And then there's going to be information there. And, and the other thing actually where we have been working kind of on a Polkadot related thing with course one, which is that we've been working on this bridge between a, a substrate chain and the Cosmos SDK chain. So we talked a little bit about both substrate and Cosmos SDK uh, in the project. Those are kind of the leading frameworks at this point for building your own blockchain. And uh, we actually have a grant from the Web3 Foundation to build that uh, bridge. And so we've kind of just are in the process of finishing that first part. And okay, with that, let's go to the interview. So we're with Joe Petrovsky and Dieter Fischbein to talk about Polkadot today. We've done a few episodes about Polkadot already. I think there was one with Gavin, there was one with Peter Saban. But now, of course, Polkadot, which has been in the making for a long time, is actually live or, you know, sort of in the first stages of liveness, which has become kind of the norm for blockchain projects, right, where a launch has become this drawn out multi-stage thing. But it is live, right, and uh, kind of with a proper proof of stake, network now. So I'm excited we can revisit Polkadot again. And uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Maybe you guys can each give a little bit of introduction about yourselves, like kind of your journey in the larger crypto space, and then like how you've ended up working on Polkadot. So I mean, I guess like I've been interested in the crypto space since like 2011 or 12, and then got more into it around like 2015, 2016. I was a professional cyclist and just kind of like looking for my next thing to do after I um, retired, just a, a funny word to say when you're like 29, and had been into crypto for a few years already, just out of interest. And then I started, um, my background was in like time series analysis and stuff. So I got into like trading algorithms and all of this sort of thing and worked on that for a couple of years and then ultimately decided to join Parity and start working on Polkadot. And I've been here like about a year and a half now. I actually discovered crypto around the same time as Joe. So I was a graduate student studying cryptography, and it was about 2013. And I remember like seeing the Bitcoin white paper at the time. And I actually think this journey sounds probably the same as so many other people. But I saw the Bitcoin white paper and uh, read it and was like, okay, that's super interesting. Put it to one side, continued on with what I was doing, finished my graduate degree and, and ended up working in finance for about four years uh, doing stuff completely unrelated, but still following the space. In about 2017, when the space was starting to get pretty, pretty large. I decided that at that point I actually wanted to work in it. 
So I ended up joining a small blockchain-focused venture capital fund in Toronto and Hong Kong, and really just learning all about layer one protocols and about the ecosystem in, in a much more deep way than I had been, which was really great. It was, it was super fun. And about a year and a bit ago, decided that I actually wanted to work in the space doing something a bit more meaningful than just investing. So joined Polkadot and yeah, I've been here ever since. Let's just start from a, from a big picture. Probably most people have, you know, some familiarity with Polkadot, but can you guys give a little bit of a background? Like what is the Polkadot vision? From a very high level, Polkadot fits in with like the rest of the Web3 vision of like creating fundamentally new ways for people to organize themselves outside of like what we would call traditional organizations or societies and a way to organize without trust. And so I think like more concretely how Polkadot expresses or like contributes to that vision is that it is a suite of protocols that allows like specialized blockchains to communicate and interact and it provides the context for this interaction. So for developers, like what this means is like they have a platform that gives them like secure interoperability and allows them to write a blockchain that specializes. And it kind of lies somewhere on the spectrum between like a smart contract and building your own blockchain from scratch. So a lot of people find that like smart contracts are either too bloaty in their execution due to like gas fees or like unpredictability or other smart contracts on a shared platform, or they just they're not able to upgrade or express the complex logic that a developer wants to be able to express. And building a whole blockchain from scratch is like a huge undertaking that can take a year or several years to do. And a lot of it's kind of like repeated work of like the networking and RPC and database type of work. Polkadot really is trying to create like a new class of developer where you can target this like intermediate zone of having a specialized blockchain with a lot of customization, but also without the full work of building out like the underlying infrastructure for that blockchain. So yeah, like to kind of wrap it all up, like it, it gives you this platform to deploy this specialized blockchain without worrying about like the security or like the underlying mechanics of it. That's exactly right. I think what Joe just described is really the vision of Polkadot for developers. For users, Polkadot can actually give us new forms of organization. So, I mean, fundamentally, Polkadot exists to give us the ability to coordinate in, in much more sophisticated ways than we've ever been able to. And ultimately, this will help us solve like much more complex problems than we ever thought possible. These are large problems requiring the pooling of resources around multiple stakeholders. And I think we'll see kind of the launching of groups that wield similar power to nation states and own properties, can enter into business agreements, derive income from sources. And, you know, I think this is more of the end user vision than uh, the actual developer vision. Let's dive into what Polkadot actually looks like. So what are the key components and technologies that make up Polkadot? So I mean, we can kind of break it down. Like technically there's this relay chain and then parachains that connect to it. And so the relay chain, it really provides like finality guarantees for the parachains and the context for them to interact with through a protocol that we call cross-chain message passing or XEMP. And then kind of like underneath the relay chain, we have a consensus mechanism. Um, it's like a hybrid consensus called Babe and Grandpa. And it's 
secured by a proof of stake algorithm called nominated proof of stake, uh, where people can select like this is a set of validators that I deem acceptable or like that I want to nominate to be a validator. So then like if we go out into the parachain space, you have like parachains and parathreads, which we could go into a little bit more. But the way that these interact with the relay chain is really interesting. So Polkadot is a sharded platform. So you can think of these parathreads or parachains as individual shards in the network. And where it gets really interesting is that from the outside in, it looks heterogeneously sharded. So each of these parachains is its own individual blockchain. It's going to have its own API. It could be like an application. It could be like a decentralized exchange or a stable coin or a smart contracting parachain. And these all look different. So if you're from the outside of Polkadot, and you know, it kind of depends like which parachain you go to, it's going to provide completely different functionality. But where this gets interesting is that the way that the relay chain interacts with them is through WebAssembly. And WebAssembly is like really the glue that holds this whole thing together. And through our libraries, like what we've provided is that all of these parachains compile down to WebAssembly, which gives them an execution interface for validators on the relay chain. So these parachains kind of all compile down to like parachain validation function to guarantee a proper state transition. So from the perspective of the relay chain, this is actually like a homogeneously sharded system. All of these parachains look the same. It just, they all expose an API that has a validation function that says like, validate my parachain. And that's it. This interaction, it provides like a lot of flexibility. And then if we kind of go like beyond the technical stuff, we can talk about like the ecosystem also, like Kusama and our testnet West End and how those play into Polkadot. And like, I don't know, Dieter can probably talk more about Kusama if you want to talk about like how that fits into Polkadot as a component. Kusama was launched uh, about a year ago. And originally when it was launched, this was kind of early version of Polkadot. And I think we launched in about August of, of 2019. The idea here was that it allowed us to go through this process of launching the network before we got to Polkadot and allowed us to you know, actually see how these things were deployed in the wild. But you know, the use case has actually really, really developed since then. And when you actually look at what Polkadot is compared to Kusama, is Kusama is this less robust, less secure version of Polkadot. And this ultimately means that we can see development take place in Kusama in a couple of ways. You have this canary network use case where we've used it to actually test out kind of new pieces of technology before deploying them to Polkadot. And we actually see this canary network use case evolve into like a canary network use case for others. And so we're seeing a lot of parachains that intend to deploy on Polkadot actually want to deploy parachains on Kusama as well. And this is so that they can uh, test upgrades that they're planning on doing and, and test things they're planning on doing in an environment with real economic consequences before eventually deploying to Polkadot. I think like a good thing to add to that, just like talking about like upgrades and probably what I should have mentioned uh, when I was talking about like the architecture and components is this concept of like being able to upgrade your chain. Um, and this is also part of how we architected Polkadot where a client doesn't like express the Polkadot logic itself. It It's actually kind of split into two parts. It, it's a host environment for this WebAssembly executable it's the same like compilation target for the parachains as for the relay chain. So it's actually hosting its own logic. And so this allows the relay chain to upgrade because we can just place a new WebAssembly executable on chain and when, without anybody upgrading their clients, 
the system can upgrade itself. And so Polkadot, like, it hosts itself, which I think is a first in, in blockchains, like being able to have forkless upgrades and upgrade the chain without having people update their clients. And this provides, like, the same functionality for parachains because they're just exposing this, like, parachain validation function for the relay chain validators, and, well, they can change that. So if they have if they want to upgrade their parachain, they can come up with a new one, and that's also hosted in the parachain storage, and they can say, hey, I want to upgrade my parachain, here's a new one. And so it's somewhat of a risky thing, too, like because we've seen mistakes on Kusama of like upgrading the relay chain and some problems there. So that's obviously like something you want to try out on a testnet or on Kusama or something before moving to Polkadot, because these are new things that we're trying to do and trying to express. And so having these testing grounds that are more than a, a testing ground, like Kusama is not a testnet, but a lower barrier to entry, lower risk than working on Polkadot is really important. You can think of it as, as the minor leagues, basically, where early stage teams can fine tune their product and business model before potentially moving that to Polkadot if they're able to, to build their community of users and actually construct a business model that makes sense and is getting traction. I mean, one thing to note, too, is Polkadot's always going to be 100% focused on reliability and security. However, there are going to be teams out there that don't need bank-like security and robustness that are willing to trade, you know, this higher throughput for lower security and robustness that they can get on Kusama. So, I mean, some use case verticals that could fit in here are like gaming, social networking, content distribution, things where there aren't really kind of high amounts of, of necessary value transferred. And so they could actually deploy to Kusama, and this could be a platform for their production deployment. And then, you know, things that kind of need this higher security, or maybe for enterprise use cases or things like that, could eventually choose to deploy to Polkadot as well. Maybe like one way to think of this spectrum is, if you think of AWS, I can go to AWS and I can give an image for a machine that I want AWS to boot up. And AWS will boot me a, a machine corresponding to the image I, I give it. So the image is essentially like this, this binary and AWS will boot the machine and it will run it for me and I can. And of course, when I give it the image, that image can include my application in it. And in some senses, Polkadot and Kusama are similar. I can come to Polkadot and Kusama and I can give them a validation function that compiles down to WebAssembly and I can somehow give it to the network and the network will boot up and run blockchain for me. Yeah, that's actually an excellent analogy, except that instead of you know, trusting AWS to secure a data center, you have this open permissionless system of relay chain validators. The difference between Kusama and Polkadot is that in some sense, when I ask Polkadot to run my validation function when I run my blockchain and I ask Kusama to run my blockchain, I am more sure that the particular blockchain I launched in Polkadot can't be attacked as easily as Kusama. So maybe there's a failure rate associated with this, these blockchains and Kusama failure rate is, let's say, like once in 10 years, Polkadot failure rate is once in 100 years. So that's the qualitative difference for me. But in order to have the blockchain with a lower failure rate, in some sense, I will also need to, I or my users in the end will also need to pay more through some mechanism which we will discuss. Exactly. And I think one way to think about this is really like 
from the perspective of how a deployment process should look. And I think teams will originally start kind of deploying their blockchain to West End, which is Kusama's testnet. And there they can kind of flesh out their tech and make sure everything works. And then after that's successful, deploy to Kusama. And then, I mean, I, I explained that process before, like maybe at some point after that, once they build their community of users, fine-tune their business model, then deploy to Polkadot if it makes sense. On some level, right, we can trace Polkadot back to the challenges of Ethereum and the challenges of Ethereum in scaling. And of course, that has led to, you know, so much different stuff, right? Whether that's now ETH 2.0, whether that's maybe something like a Cosmos vision where, oh, there will be many blockchains and they operate, whether that's visions like the Polkadot one, where you have this one tightly interwoven system of many blockchains that then can be separate, you know, and then you have like things like near Solana, like so many other things. When you guys kind of look at this landscape and how this has evolved, what do you see as the most important dimensions in which to differentiate these different approaches? And like, where do you sort of situate uh, Polkadot in this landscape? A lot of the early motivations for these kind of next generation protocols came out of scalability. Several years ago, people knew that like Ethereum wasn't going to be scalable for building production applications if it was going to gain mass adoption. And so we talked, started talking about like different scalability approaches and we saw a few. So like um, you look at like what Nier is doing and they're saying like, well, we're going to still do smart contracts, but we're going to do sharding on a single state. And Ethereum too said, well, we're also going to still do smart contracts, but we're going to use eWASM and we're going to have these sharded chains that are all the same. They all just kind of have like an eWASM host environment. And then we saw Cosmos say like, well, we want to do like interoperability. So we're going to have like specialized blockchains and we're going to let them communicate with each other. I think there's another dimension in here, which is security. And so I wouldn't really say like one of these is more important than another one. I would say like we try to look at all three security, interoperability and scalability as like three dimensions of the same, like fundamentally the same problem. So you know, interoperability kind of naturally gives you scalability because you can, if you can send messages between different systems, then all of a sudden these systems can specialize and you just get like horizontal scalability, right? That's kind of obvious. But what do those messages mean? And without security, you're kind of relying, well, if I receive a message, how do I know that the chain hasn't been forked or attacked since it sent that message. And so all of a sudden you're kind of stuck with, well, how do I interpret these messages that I'm receiving? Like I have this scalability and interoperability, like that's great, but like, what do I do with these? Right. The angle we're trying to take is like providing the context in the form of security to give these messages meaning so that if, if you receive a message, you have some guarantees about the provenance of that message, like who sent it, how it was generated. If the message says like, Hey, I burned a hundred tokens. So therefore, like, you can mint 100 tokens um, on your chain. I want to actually know that, like, you burned 100 tokens on your chain, right? And that you didn't just send me this message. And likewise, like, for the sender, you know, I want to know how this message is going to be interpreted. Is this person going to just mint 200 and then come back to me later and say, like, yeah, I actually have 200? Um, like, well, no, you don't. I would say, like, the other dimension that we go to is just, like, pushing scalability or pushing this work to the edges of the system, right? Like a lot of sharded systems have some sort of like central gatekeeper that's kind of like the relayer between all these different chains that are in the system. And with Polkadot, like one of our core principles is that like 
we really want the relay chains to do like as little as possible. The relay chains to really provide the context for these messages and for the interoperability, but it shouldn't actually send them itself. So we let the chains actually just like talk to each other, like chain to chain. Um, doesn't even need to be through validators. Like if they just share a normal full node, they can actually exchange messages. But those messages are still guaranteed by the security of the relay chain. To kind of like go back to like your original question, like I don't know if I would particularly like pick out a single dimension of this that's the most important. I, I think you need like more of a holistic solution about how you actually scale Web3 and make these different systems interact. So the way I, I think of it is, like you mentioned, there's an interplay between scalability and messaging. And the idea that a system like Cosmos and system like Polkadot ultimately is playing with is you can have many blockchains and they can message with each other. The difference is that in a Cosmos-like system, if you imagine a blockchain and it has a post box and other blockchains can sort of deposit messages, letters into this post box. And then this blockchain will process each of these letters in its own logic. In Cosmos, when the letters, let's say, stack up in the post box, there's a stack of 10 letters from 10 different blockchains. Each of these letters has different risk, right? So for example, the first letter it might be that, hey, there's a once in 10 year risk that this letter is actually a forgery of some kind, meaning that it's not really valid, but it looks like a valid letter. The second letter is that also runs that risk, but maybe it's a once in 100 years risk. There's a third letter that runs a once in two years risk and fourth letter that runs a once in 50 years risk. And so each of these letters essentially has a heterogeneous risk. And this blockchain in some way will need to deal with the heterogeneity of these risks. And the risk comes from, oh, you receive a letter from a particular blockchain, you're trusting that blockchain, right? So if that blockchain ends up being corrupted, then that letter could end up being, I don't know, invalid or due to some hack or... What's happening with Polkadot is when a blockchain runs on Polkadot and it has a post box, it's also receiving letters. Now, these letters are of two kinds. Like one kind is it's receiving letters from inside the Polkarot ecosystem. And there's there might be other messages it's receiving from outside the Polkarot ecosystem. But let's forget the ones it receives from outside the Polkarot ecosystem and just zoom into the ones it receives from inside the Polkarot ecosystem. So these are other blockchains. Yeah, and I think outside the Polkadot ecosystem, you could kind of consider like a chain's API, right? Like how does it let the users, untrusted people interact with it? So when the messages come from outside, it will have the same problem Cosmos chains have, which is it will need to deal with the uh, fact that all these letters have intrinsically different risks. But if you look at like the sheaf of letters coming from inside the Polkadot ecosystem, what Polkadot has essentially done is even though these letters are from different blockchains, all of them have exactly the same risk. And it's trying to make that risk be, be low. It's trying to make that risk be once in 50 years or once in 100 years. It's not just that they have equal risk. It's that they share common execution and state logic with yourself. And so if you compare this to like smart contracts interacting on Ethereum, like, like smart contracts on Ethereum can interoperate with each other and the reason they can do that is because they're sharing common execution logic. The fact that they're on the same chain and that they're sharded, that's what allows them to interact in a synchronous way instead of asynchronous. But what allows them to interoperate 
in a trustless way is that they share common state and execution logic. So contract A knows that if it receives a message from contract B, there's no possible condition where contract B gets like 51% attacked and gets rolled back to a state before it sent that message and contract A doesn't. They either both get rolled back and attacked or they both don't. So you know that like if you receive a message and there is some attack, you would also go back to a point before you receive the message and would get to reprogress through and maybe that message gets sent again or maybe it doesn't. Polkadot provides that similar guarantee where if some other parachain in the system sends you a message, there's no way that parachain can be reverted to a state before it sent that message without you also being reverted to a state before you received that message. And so that's one of the things that I mean by context that the relay chain provides is that you can't attack a single parachain without attacking the entire system. If you look at compare Cosmos and Polkadot, right, there is, of course, you know, many pros and cons on each side, right, because they're just different approaches. But a big pro in uh, if you run a parachain, right, is you don't have to worry about, you know, the validators. You don't have to find the validators and you have this kind of like shared, you know, the shared security. The con is, I think, that you have more complexity, right? The system is just very... And then especially these in that outside event that you know, maybe it's never going to happen, but where, you know, there is this corruption and having to roll back all of the, the chains in, in Polkadot, that's going to be uh, a challenge. Actually, I would, has that happened in testnets? I mean, we've rolled back Kusama before by a few blocks. But was that just a single chain without having to roll back also relay parachains that are connected with it? Exactly. Like we haven't done a system of like rolling back a hard fork with multiple parachains. No, that hasn't been done yet. Hopefully it doesn't have to be done. Well, I think that kind of ties actually into something that we'd love to dive in here because right now, uh, you know, the relay chain is live, which is still restricted, right? So there's no token transfers yet. There's staking. So can you talk a little bit about what are the stages of this Polkadot launch and, you know, what do the next uh, two or three years uh, look like or what has to happen for kind of the full Polkadot to be in operation? Yeah, so like we launched um, about the end of May in like a proof of authority phase and um, the purpose of this phase is, is really to like allow people to claim their DOT tokens and set up their staking infrastructure. So I, I know that's like, you kind of mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is like a thing with, with blockchains now of like having a bigger rollout process. And if you think about like when Bitcoin and Ethereum launched, there wasn't really like a threat of like launching and having like a, a really low security and then getting attacked. But if you look at like modern blockchains when there's like a lot of attention on them, there's much higher risk. So you could imagine like a scenario of um, say you launch a blockchain that has 100 million tokens in it and on day one there's only... 100,000 of them have been claimed, some person could come along and say, like, claim a million of them. And easily, like, this individual could attack the chain in that moment. So, like, the proof of authority phase is really just to allow, like, enough stake to be claimed and put behind validators that we can, like, securely transition to a permissionless proof of stake, which we did after, I think, about two weeks. Um, so we switched to nominated proof of stake and then relatively quickly scaled up the validator count to about 200 validators. So that's where we are now is um, we've been running uh, for two or three weeks now with about 200 validators on Polkadot with still quite restricted functionality like 
limited to like the staking and um, proxying accounts and like kind of getting your infrastructure set up. Our next phase, which will hopefully be in the next two or three weeks, um, we'll be rolling out governance and removing the pseudo authority. You know, like Polkadot has this module, it's called pseudo, that it takes the place of governance before governance is like fully in place. So we should very quickly see the removal of that and the implementation of like our full full governance protocol suite. And then after that, it would be enabling balance transfers and hopefully not too long after that. So I think I think we'll probably see that around like um, late August, early September, and then hopefully not too much longer enabling parachains and then uh, cross-chain message passing by the end of the year, I would hope. So I think like that's kind of what the next six months look like when we talk about like getting to the core relay chain functionality and like opening up all these features. When we talk about like getting to the full Polkadot vision, I would say the next two or three years will still be a lot more infrastructure. So I wouldn't expect like a super exciting application to be out there like in a year or something. I think it's like Polkadot is like fundamentally like infrastructure for infrastructure. The first wave of parachains are actually going to be like not so much an application in themselves. So there might be a stablecoin chain, a decentralized exchange chain, um, an identity chain. And then I know you guys want to talk about later, but like some more system level parachains, moving some work off of the relay chain and putting that into parachains. And that really provides like infrastructure and composability for other applications. So the next wave of applications that comes in after that, well, they have an identity suite. They have a stable coin, they have a decentralized exchange, they have a smart contracting chain, all of this stuff. And so that's what I'd expect in like the, say like four to 10 year frame is these applications can come in and they have all of these primitives that exist within um, the Polkadot network that they can compose and build higher level logic. And I mean, I would say like, when we talk about like the full vision of Polkadot, I don't think we can, like anybody can predict it. Like if Polkadot is successful, it won't be something that I could tell you today. My imagination is kind of like restricted to like things that I know and like maybe like a little bit more, I would hope. You know, I don't, I don't want Polkadot to like just recreate stuff that exists today and like redeploy it. Like I want to see new stuff, new things that don't exist yet. And I think that just takes like people coming from different backgrounds um, and seeing things like in a new way. Um, it's not necessarily possible to see like from your one angle. So that's what I would hope to see like in the longer term is more of these applications coming in that I'm just like, oh, that that doesn't even exist in the non-blockchain world, but it's being deployed on Polkadot. And, and I think one really powerful thing with, which Joe alluded to is you're going to see like a very different notion of application. Like now when we think of applications, we think of them living on, on one layer one and, and, you know, that provides some limitations. But with Polkadot, with the really intimate notion of interoperability and with kind of this environment of, of all these, you know, application specific and also more general parachains, you're going to basically see this notion of an application that lives across parachains. And that's going to make things much more scalable and, and much more powerful in a lot of ways. Yeah, I can't wait to see like an application that's not a blockchain itself, but it uses like all these blockchain primitives. So like instead of PayPal, it uses like a stable client platform. And, you know, instead of some like email login, it uses some like Web3 login type of thing. And the application itself isn't a blockchain. It's just using blockchains like as its backend. Yeah, that's... I mean, first of all, the first thing comes to mind. I think that sounds very, uh, you know, in in the time frame that is probably realistic. But it's interesting, kind of like pointing out just a long time scale we're talking about. 
and of course it's not just Polkadot, right? This is like same with Eve two and like all of these other networks. But we're just seeing this is taking uh, such a long time, you know, to be in the place where actually you know blockchains uh, are able to support you know end user applications with you know millions of users that. Yeah, it's it's a long it's a long road that uh, is ahead of uh, Polkadot and and the entire blockchain space. I mean, one one really nice thing for Polkadot is is even though we're just getting around to launching Polkadot now, um, Substrate has been around for I, I don't know how long, like like well over a year, right? Right, Joe? Um, yeah, a year and a half, two years. And so, I mean, something we haven't really touched on, but I, I mean, to build one of these parachains, like Substrate is this um, this very versatile framework for building kind of either your own independent blockchain or uh, your own independent blockchain that can natively connect to Polkadot as a parachain. So we've actually um, been very lucky to see a ton of development in, you know, of teams building on Substrate. And I mean, we actually, we actively track the number of teams building on Substrate. There's something like 70 teams doing this. And it's, uh, it's really, really special to see, you know, this ecosystem already forming. And so we think, I mean, when Polkadot is launched, I mean, this gives us this kind of massive bench of teams. Yeah, I mean, we've been, we of course, Ron, right? I mean, running our validators on, on Polkadot, but also we've been doing that for Centrifuge now for, for quite a few months, which, of course, is built on on Substrate. I'm kind of curious, like, because you're running validators on, on Centrifuge. Like, I mean, like, I'm mostly in this, like, Polkadot and Kusama ecosystem. Like, how different is it to run a validator on a, like an arbitrary substrate-based blockchain versus on Polkadot? The validator experience is very similar today. The same tool sets, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nearly I mean, everything's, the, everything's the same. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. Like, that really helps, like, scalability. And, like, hopefully that eventually transitions over to, like, collator nodes yeah. on Polkadot. I mean, we, absolutely. I mean, I think we, we are seeing that also from, uh, you know, there's now... We are probably running like six blockchains to build on Cosmos SDK. And the, the ease of onboarding these networks is just 20 times easier or something than like some totally independent blockchain. And I mean, the same is going to be true with Substrate, right? And also, as you pointed out, right, many, many chains also deciding to build on Substrate. And I think that's going to be a, a great advantage, right? Because you're going to have tooling around that framework and people are going to be familiar with it. And that's going to, so I, I think actually when it comes to this sort of blockchain frameworks, I mean, at least the way it looks like to me at the moment, uh, you know, I think we're going to have like Substrate and Cosmos SDK both having a big market share, but I think it's going to be difficult actually for somebody else to come in uh, without doing something like dramatically better. Yeah. And even, even from my vantage point, while it's like a very technical point, the the substrates design that like pieces of substrate compiled down to swasm and then they can be upgraded uh, independent of each other is such a massive strength of of substrate it's a strength that's really hard to appreciate un- until the point you run a blockchain and you need to upgrade something <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like we saw this kind of recently in in Kusama. It gives us a lot of flexibility to push like optimizations in the underlying client too. Like, we did we did an upgrade, I think, to like version like 2012 on Kusama, and the client actually like for validators was throwing some error about like having difficulty finding the the signing key 
for the session. But those validators were just able to downgrade their client to like the previous version, but without affecting the actual blockchain's upgrade. So like we just had all the validators running like like a, the client version of like one earlier than latest, but the actual runtime of the blockchain was on the latest version and that didn't affect anything. So it's like pretty cool that it gives us this flexibility to like fix bugs both on the runtime side and the client side. So talking a little bit about, you know, kind of what's in development in at the moment. So there are system pair chains that you guys mentioned, right? That will, let's say, stable coin or identity that will then be available to other parachains. So what are some system parachains that are like, you know, currently being developed? And yeah, maybe start there. I wouldn't call those system level parachains. I guess like the vocabulary is not completely flushed out here. You know, I mean, those are still like infrastructure, but maybe coming from like some other other party and um, like somebody who's actually like bidding for those parachain slot because like they want to launch their identity solution versus somebody else's. Um, I view system level parachains as offloading work from the relay chain. So, you know, like the relay chain's primary responsibility is validating the state transitions of parachains, um, but it also has all these other things like it has dot tokens and so it has to deal with like balance transfers and staking um, and governance and all all of this stuff and that could all be offloaded into parachains so you could have like a balance as parachain a governance parachain a staking parachain and all of the transactions that are related to that type of activity take place on those parachains which just leaves room for more parachains in the system to exist because you're pulling all of that stuff out of the relay chain Really, the only stuff that should go into the relay chain is the like the updates to the parachain heads. So we kind of take like I don't think it's like fully decided, but like the like a hash of the header of the latest parachain block or the state root or something, and that gets updated in the relay chain block. And then some like other critical stuff. So like if somebody observes some like misbehavior from a validator, like slashable behavior that you want to report, um, you don't really want that like going on on a parachain, you want that to go like right to the middle so that everybody knows about it right away. Um, but the relay chain should really just be doing this like super like low level core stuff. And so like I view system level parachains as like anything that just takes functionality away from the relay chain and puts it more on the edges of the system. The, the way I think about this breakdown yeah. is you have parachains, you have the collection of parachains, and then you have a category of kind of governance allocated parachains. So, I mean, these are parachains that are, are some sort of public good where, I mean, these slots weren't bid on by kind of individual projects that want to build their business. And then you have system level parachains. I mean, these will definitely will almost surely be assigned by governance, but then you probably actually have this kind of other category of governance assigned parachains that aren't actually taking functionality off the relay chain, but are still some sort of public good that shouldn't be launched as a business necessarily, or, or at least, I mean, this is very subjective, but at least at this time, we don't, we don't think that that should be true. Yeah, I would see like system level parachains or like anything that's awarded by governance as like kind of like a good for the whole Polkadot ecosystem um, probably is like a tokenless parachain. The fact that that's even possible kind of just like speaks to the security model of Polkadot as a whole that like you don't really need to depend on having your own token for like block rewards or like having value at stake for your validators um, in order to be secure 
because you're like kind of like outsourcing your security to the relay chain. And so you can really have these parachains that don't have any token or like economic model with them at all. They just provide some sort of service. And and that's primarily what I would see as being um, allocated by governance. A good a good example would be bridges, probably. Um, I mean, they kind of have their own token, but I think, I mean, our view is that they, they shouldn't, and these should be launched on kind of governance-allocated parachain slots, and any transaction fees should be paid in kind of some other tokens, basically, and, and probably go to like some pool of capital that serves to keep these pieces of infrastructure updated and, and maintained. Yeah, I mean, if you think about like a Polkadot Ethereum bridge or something, if you introduce like a third token for the bridge, the bridge is kind of just like acting as a middleman and like, yeah, I'm going to like take my cut, my own token or whatever. So yeah, I, I think it would be ideal that we can just say like, hey, this is a useful service to the whole Polkadot network to have a bridge to Ethereum. It doesn't need its own token, so we're just going to like provide this functionality. And it's not only as benign as this token just being like a middleman, it actually brings in real security concerns depending on how you actually use the token. So, I mean, in some designs, if, um, you know, certain kind of participants in the bridge have to actually use these tokens uh, as collateral to stake, then you're now introducing this this uh, concern that what if kind of there's, you know, a market dump of that token and it has no value. And then these kind of staked participants um, no longer are subject to, to say, slashing. And uh, then there's potentially like security concerns that that introduces. Whereas if you kind of keep um, the types of collateral to kind of more liquid, more, you know, assets that have other use cases and other purposes, then I think you mitigate that risk. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, actually, that brings sort of a, a, one of the one of the really cool aspects of Polkadot. The things that I'm I find are just sort of like uh, is elegant and interesting, which is this idea that you okay, you want to create a parachain, and then you basically can lease a parachain slot, right? Which which will mean with the exception of the things you mentioned now, right? If there's some sort of like, you know, public good parachain. But of course, the other thing can be that, you know, I have some idea for decentralized application. You know, I could go and build it as a smart contract on Ethereum or somewhere else. I could like create my completely own blockchain that, you know, I have to get my own validator set, et cetera. Or there is this, you know, hybrid approach where I can kind of get my own parachain uh, so it's kind of your own blockchain and you can decide a lot of things about what that looks like. But at the same time, you know, you're leveraging all of the Polkadot thing and you're basically putting up uh, this leasing, you know, starts to lease that slot. And of course, it also means I can still have my own token on that chain. But, you know, today with most, most proof of stake token, if you create it, or most proof of stake networks, you're launching a network and then that, that token is used, you know, to pay validators, to put up collateral, etc. Whereas in the Polkadot example, you know, that's decoupled, right? You have dots that are used to hurt the collateral, but afterwards you can kind of do whatever you want with the token. So I think that's really interesting. It's it's a novel thing, right, that we don't have today. So I'm curious, what do you think are some of the you know business model or interesting use cases that are going to kind of arise from this new paradigm? Yeah, so I mean, you bring up a good point. Again, the, the spectrum of things that you can build on Polkadot, basically, I mean, there's two dimensions to this, I think. 
The things that you can build on Polkadot can look anywhere like applications built on Ethereum to uh, platforms like Ethereum, basically. And then, you know, I think you can kind of split business models in, in, in roughly two ways. You know, one, you, you can still have these token models. And I think, I think actually when, you know, we did a survey of uh, several dozen kind of core teams that are planning to build parachains, and we, we asked them a ton of questions. And one question was, do you plan to have a native token? And I think almost all teams said yes, basically, which, which was quite interesting. And, and I think, you know, generally, like the use of a native token is one of the uses will be to reward collators, basically. And collators on parachains are, they, they basically take parachain transactions, package them into blocks that are then, um, you know, reviewed by validators on the relay chain, essentially. So there's a much different security model for collators than, than validators. You, you just need one honest collator to make sure that actually the blocks produced by parachains um, go to the relay chain successfully so they can compromise availability, but they can't compromise safety, essentially. All this to say that incentivization of collators matters quite a bit less than incentivization that of validators, and there's much less that can go wrong. So when you actually think about um, having an inflationary model that rewards collators, this doesn't need to be of the same magnitude of having an inflationary model that rewards validators. Um, so, so you can get away with a lot less inflation. I mean, this is a, I, it took me a lot to, to get back to this point, but, but basically I think you will see um, token models for platforms that are very similar to kind of token models and proof-of-stake platforms, but have way less inflation you know, making it kind of cheaper for participants in the long run. I think that's definitely one thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great you bring that up because you can, of course, look at uh, at this problem of, or at this situation that you have to put up dots to lease a parachain slot. And, you know, in, in some level, it, there's also something problematic about it, right? Because you have, let's say, a new team coming up and, you know, maybe they raise, uh, maybe they're just a startup, right? And they don't have any capital. Or let's say they raise capital from from some VC and investors. I think though they will be very, very hesitant or wary of the team then going to like purchase dots to lock them up for a long time. Uh, but I think the natural thing to happen here is... That you know you'll have on the one hand people with dots, and then on the other hand you'll have people who like have a business idea for a parachain, and then I think so. For, from my perspective, like the obvious thing to do would be to create some sort of like a marketplace, right? Where I can say, oh, I'm I'm creating my own parachain. It's gonna have its own native token. I need somebody to put up the collateral for that parachain, but I'm gonna pay some inflation, you know, on that token to basically compensate people for putting up the collateral. I think that's sort of the natural thing in my eyes to like happen there. And it could be very cool to have this sort of, you know, crowdfunding, parachain leasing marketplace. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is something that, that we've arrived at as well. And in fact, as um, there's a substrate palette called the crowdfunding module, and this is actually deployed on the relay chain. And it basically allows for, for exactly uh, what you're saying here, that the crowdfunding of parachain slots. 
So how this would work in practice is a project that is seeking to, to raise enough dots to acquire a parachain slot would essentially use this module to accept contributions from dot holders uh, into an account on the relay chain. And you know, if the account obtains enough dots to win on the next parachain auction, then the dots you know, would be used kind of at, as the bond for the duration of that auction, and then they'd be returned to dot holders. Uh, the dot holders who contributed them. And then, you know, of course, if, if the auction fails, you know, these dots would be immediately returned uh, to contributors. And because this account is on the relay chain and it's not like you know, contributors are, are sending these directly to the parachains, um, this, in, in a way, this is very secure. Like dot holders, you know, as long as they trust in, in the security of Polkadot, uh, know they will receive these back. And there's no risk, say, of like, ICO risk, where you can kind of send your ETH or, or Bitcoin to uh, to a project, and you know they they fizzle out and you lose everything. Uh, in a sense, it's a secure debt investment into a parachain. And so, you know, this brings into the question which you were saying, Brian, like how are these dot holders being compensated for that? So. You know, this is left open and this is not, you know, built-in rewards is not something that the crowd module, um, the crowdfunding module handles, but we fully expect projects to, you know, incentivize contributors here by setting up, you know, some sort of offer. And I think the most obvious offer, and I think this is what we're going to see early on and potentially for a long time is, as you said, you get like some sort of share of that parachain's native tokens and, and the way you set the share is you probably have to make it more attractive than staking. In, in a sense, staking asks as the risk-free rate here. It's actually much more complicated than that because there's, there's different risks associated with, with sending your dots to the crowdfunding module, actually probably lower risks than staking. So it's a bit different. So you could see dot holders or contributors rewarded in a parachain's native token, but you could also see other stuff, right? Like, you don't have to have a native token to use the crowdfunding module. So you could see projects that either don't have a native token or really, really believe in, in what they're doing and want to retain as many tokens um, as possible, I, I guess in, in the short term probably, use, um, say, stablecoins as rewards or use dots as rewards. And this actually gives a much different risk profile to what um, basically to the contributor's uh, contribution. Uh, you could also see choice here. You could give people different options. And uh, yeah, I think this will be super, super interesting. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely see that. And actually, one, one interesting thing to add, when we asked projects if they plan to use the crowdfunding module to raise dots, I, I think all but maybe one or two of the projects we served were, were yes. Um, so I think this will definitely be probably one of the most predominant sources to actually raise this bond. There's a very interesting differentiation of where inflationary tokens go in, for example, Cosmos SDK chains, which are independent and in, in a para chain. So in a, in a traditional Cosmos SDK chain, let's say they start with 100 million tokens. And generally, these chains need to have high inflation. So they might be 7% or 10% inflation. So let's say 10 million tokens a year are printed. And it might be the case that 9 million of these tokens already go to the existing token holders and a million of these tokens go to the validators to run the infrastructure. So 
in some sense in these networks the validators are the beneficiaries of new token supply now in in the in the polkadot environment the validators are less clearly the beneficiaries of of new token supply because when you when you create your own token and launch a parachain you don't need to give extra supply to the validators it's the parachain that figures out how to remunerate the validators so you don't need to give the new supply to the validators but you may yeah, well, the validators don't even know anything about like the internals of your parachain or, or even like whether it has a token or not exactly exactly but you might may slash probably need to give some of your new token supply to the people who put up dots so that you could lease your parachain slot so in a in a sovereign cosmos sdk or sovereign substrate model the validators are the beneficiaries of new token supply in the polkadot model the dot holders are the beneficiaries of the newly minted token supply which is very interesting because it's almost like the capital allocation role is shifting here so in in many times in sovereign chains it's like when you and as a validator you go and validate these chains you are doing some form of capital allocation because like you want to go and validate those chains in which the token value will go up or you want to validate those chains where it will be successful but out when in polkadot or that kind of role of picking who will be successful is shifted onto the dot holders yeah so i think like the word sovereign carries some like decision making um connotation to it and i would say in the sense that parachains are actually sovereign blockchains they have their own implementations of governance and and the way that they handle the logic of their chain when it comes to validators i mean people might be getting confused unless we like break down the whole like validators versus collators thing here but when it comes to validators they really have no choice about like which parachain they validate and it actually changes every block so like using like a random a VRF which that can go in another direction but like using a VRF we randomly assign validators to parachains every block and so this actually every single block this just gets reshuffled and so validators don't really have any choice about what parachain they're validating just jumping in here like if if you shuffle every single block i mean don't you have as validated like sync the blockchain or like how, no, how does that so this is like where it gets really cool about like webassembly and like some of these like really early decisions say like 2 years ago about the way that like the host environment is architected and and isolated and how we use webassembly um and like why a light client was built into substrate from the beginning So you can think of the relay chain as a light client to all of the parachains and you can think of every parachain as a light client to the relay chain. And so when a validator shows up at the at a parachain to validate, it already has the previous state root of that parachain and what what the collator from the parachain actually hands over to the the validator, um we call it a proof of validity. So it it has the block, so you have like a list of a list of state transitions and like the header information about like what its parent block is and what the new state root is and then it comes with this like pruned state tree so you think of like a merkle tree where all of the leaves are just hashes only the values that actually got updated would be in what they hand over the rest would just be like the hashes and so um uh, it's still like quite a a large chunk of information that goes over um but they basically have like the previous state root um and they have like 
the different, like basically like the diff of the Merkle tree of the state of that. And then they have the list, the block, which is the list of state transitions. And so they can actually, and then they have the actual runtime, like the WASM executable of that parachain. And so they can like, they can validate this list of state transitions against the difference in the state and they can show that they validly get to the new state root. And that's like their their process. So you have this kind of like cluster of validators and they're all going to kind of like gossip this around. Like they're, they're a little like micro cluster. Say there's like 10 validators on a parachain and they're going to attest that this thing is uh, valid before what actually goes into the relay chain is just like the header information or like a hash of the header of this parachain. And that's what actually goes in. And there's like a whole bunch of like other availability and, and validity checks um, that go on before this gets finalized. Um, and that stuff's pretty interesting too. But yeah, just to like, to briefly answer your question, that's how they're able to do it without any kind of sync issues. Yeah, that's actually super cool. One of the concerns I have as a putting on a hat as somebody looking to lease a parachain. One of the concerns I have is that this model appears to be one in which pricing is potentially volatile. Meaning if I think of an AWS experience, I want to be able to go to AWS and have a machine for like as much time as I want with a fixed cost that maybe goes up with the rate of inflation. That's the arrangement I want. But in the in the Polkadot model, I have to get some people to put in dots that might be volatile themselves. And because they are putting in something that is volatile, I will have to give them something that is volatile as well. And there has to be a financial contract, balances volatility. It feels like it's not the ideal customer experience for somebody wanting to launch a parachain. So, I I mean, with that, like, I don't think you necessarily have to reward people giving dots with another volatile asset. I mean, I think some some people will want that because they'll be risk-seeking and want to take that. But I think there'll be probably an element of contributors out there that will appreciate a stable return to their volatile asset, which, which they will get back. So, you know, I, I don't think that's everyone. But, I mean, to your point on, on this is an ideal user experience, I, I mean... I think at the end of the day, this will really actually help select the good projects versus the bad projects. And, you know, by by basically having this process where you allow um, the community and dot holders to actually drill into what each of these projects are doing, I mean, I think value propositions will be challenged enough that we'll actually see some, some really interesting models here and, and really see good projects actually get the funding required to, to participate in this. I think like also the parachain lease is for two years, which, you know, in crypto space is kind of an eternity for a project to get going. Um, <laughs> but there's also, it's not like you lose this lease and then you're all of a sudden like kicked out or whatever. Um, there's a lot of other options. So like you can convert to a pair of thread and have like more of a pay as you go model. And you're not going to get like the same execution throughput, but you still get the same security guarantees, um, the same API, the same experience. Um, it just might be like a little bit slower. And so, um, I mean, that's kind of like an, an on-ramp and an off-ramp to being a parachain, right? Is um, that like maybe you don't have the ability to to raise all of the dots that you would need for a parachain slot, but you can get started as a parathread and kind of like prove your application and develop interest in it 
to get like the next one. There will be some stability, even though like early on, like some of these auctions could have wide variations, but the actual like swapping doesn't only take place like during an auction. Pair of threads and pair of chains can actually just kind of like agree to swap. So like if somebody decides, hey, I don't want my pair of chain slot anymore, but I still have another year on my lease. If you find a pair of thread that's willing to take over your lease, you can just swap places. And so I think with that kind of like slot liquidity, if you will, that allows this like intermediate swapping, um, I would be surprised to see in the long term, like too high of a variation there because like people will always know like, oh, if this, if this slot auction goes for some obscene amount, you know, I could like kind of offer to take somebody else's like off their hand in the midterm for something cheaper. We we also have this idea that there's going to be kind of one substrate based chain, uh, like to a pair of chain slot, which which is true. It's technically the thing that has to happen. But I think what you'll actually see potentially is like one chain that wins a pair of chain slot. Maybe they don't actually need all that throughput, and you know maybe they could you know depending on what they're building, this this will vary quite a lot. But you know if they're kind of building the stablecoin platform, maybe it makes sense to have you know a substrate based chain that's building a DeFi application actually deploy on their chain as well, and you know maybe they can actually say, okay, a DeFi application, do you want a portion of you know, do you want a portion of my runtime? And I mean, with substrates, sophisticated governance, I think there's actually probably quite good ways to manage the sharing of these parachain slots like that. Cool. Those are some very, very cool features. I'm amazed that it's just possible to kind of like swap out the pair. But uh, you guys brought up pair of threads. Maybe it's worth spending like a few minutes talking about what pair of threads are. Yeah, I mean, like it, it kind of—they were kind of born out of this concern about like, well, what happens if I lose my parachain slot? You know, like, what am I just out or something? And so, I mean, you can think of like an application on a computer that, um, you know, you can kind of like pull in some application, execute it on a thread, put this back in memory, and then come back to it later, um, rather than keeping it like in the cache and executing all the time. They're actually quite similar to parachains. I mean, they have this exact same API. They have the exact same security. They have the interchain message passing or cross-chain message passing. Um, there's going to be more latency because like the messages aren't going to be delivered on like every single relay chain block. Um, so the big difference is really like how you allocate these slots. So like we predict that for every 10 validators on the relay chain, we can have one parachain slot. And so, you know, if you have a thousand validators, you can have a hundred slots. Um, but this is kind of like fundamentally limited. It can only execute so many parachains in one relay chain block. And so parachains, you know, they put up this bond that for like one or two years. And by bonding these tokens, they basically have the right to execute a block of their own every time that there's a relay chain block. So they have very high throughput. They're just always able to submit a block. Parathreads, they actually don't have like a bond, or it might be like a very small bond to become a parathread. But then they have like more of a pay-as-you-go model. So you might have um, 30 of these 100 parachain slots might be allocated to parathreads, and you might have 1,000 parathreads out there that are all bidding for these 30 slots. And so they're just going to like bid, hey, I'm willing to give five dots to a validator if they'll take my block and execute it 
And somebody else would say, well, I'll give seven or whatever. Um, and this is on a block basis, not on a transaction right, basis. Right, this is on a block-by-block block basis. And so it'll take, like, the top 30 bids and say, like, okay, well, these are, like, in the next block, I'm going to take these 30 pair of threads and execute those. But who who pays, like, who makes, I mean, let's say there's this pair of thread, which sort of like a little bit like a blockchain, right? And various users sending various transactions, can they sort of like pay a little fee with each transaction and those get aggregated up? And if it's enough, they get the block? Or is, does that payment happen in some other way? Right. I mean, it depends on the pair of thread. I mean, like the payment would be like in DOT tokens. And so like however they wanted to acquire DOT tokens, like whether they have an account or, I mean, like they will have an account on the relay chain, but like however they wanted to acquire them and like decide how to allocate them or like charge their transaction fees in their native token and whatever logic they have for converting that to DOT tokens to make the bid. Um, and it could be inflationary. So they could say, you know, like my block reward is going to be like one native token if it's been, say, 10 blocks since the last time we got a block in the relay chain. But if it's been 100 blocks since we've gotten a block in the relay chain, our um, our block reward will be, say, 50 tokens or something that will give that collator more incentive to say like, hey, I really want to get this block into the relay chain, so I'll bid more dots. I think a lot of applications actually make sense as a pair of thread and not as a pair of chain. So like if we think about like higher throughput applications, of course it makes more sense to be a pair of chain. And they might start out as a pair of thread to gain some traction and then like raise the capital that they need to become a pair of chain. But applications that are say like read heavy versus write heavy um, those would make perfect sense as a as a pair of threads. So if you think of like a Bitcoin oracle that just says like, hey, this is the latest like block header that I have from Bitcoin or whatever, that's only like every 10 minutes. You don't need to have a, a block every six seconds for that. Or say you're like a domain name service, um, you could update your registry every hour and still let people read from it. You don't need to submit a block every six seconds. So you could just kind of like collect this change to your DNS and then submit like a batch of this every hour or two hours or whatever you want, um, there's no need for this like super fast throughput. So I think for some applications, it actually makes more sense to just stay a pair thread. So in some sense, it is like this like on-ramp to convert to a pair chain or back to a pair thread. Um, but in, some sen- in another sense, it's just like a different economic model that is like fundamentally like more opposite to certain applications than others. So in, in, in some sense, the, the unifying principle appears to be that in Polkadot, you're really auctioning off parachain block production rights, right? So there's auctions at two timescales. One is a per block timescale, and then there's a, one is a two years worth of block production timescale, right? And Polkadot is a system that just believes in auctioning off these, these assets and people can bid on those assets at these two different timescales. And then and then they can create financial engineering on top of it to auction off those resources to other users. Yes, like the primary resource is state transition validation. Right. Do you have any examples of teams that are building like this financial engineering on on top of parachains, on top of parachains or parathreads? Like they're they're taking these production slots somehow they're acquiring these production slots somehow and then they are selling them on further or something like that and that is itself decentralized application i don't know about selling them i think the most interesting one that we've seen is akala 
I'm really like, I'm excited in general, like I said it earlier, but like things that don't exist before, I don't, I'm very, um, I don't know the right word, like skeptical or maybe just like negative about DeFi in general, where I see just like kind of these like same financial primitives that a lot of like the early blockchain movement was kind of like opposed to like, this is the problem. And now we're like, well, let's just recreate these exact same instruments on a blockchain. And like, I think it's kind of silly. And I think it's like, it's more interesting to see like something new that's never been done before. And so like what Akala is doing is um, they're calling it a decentralized sovereign wealth fund where they have some like dot tokens outside of their parachain salt that they're staking. And these are actually owned by the chain. So, um, they have a parachain with its own like native token and treasury, but this parachain has an account on the relay chain, and it can also interact with other like other parachains in the ecosystem. And so, it actually owns some DOT tokens that it will stake and use those staking rewards to start contributing to its parachain slot and steadily return whatever crowdfunded DOT tokens they got to their users who crowdfunded them. And then, in that sense, they just become like a self-sustaining parachain. And they can they can take stake in like other parachains or like when we have a bridge to Ethereum Bitcoin, like they could take they could take a stake in those. And I, I think that's like it's interesting because we're not talking about like an organization that's decided to um take a stake in like some blockchain token or an individual or something. We're talking about one blockchain owning a stake in another blockchain. It's something that like we can't really express in like the Ethereum or Bitcoin world. Like we can talk about like interoperability that like we have Bitcoin on Ethereum or something, but you can't really have like Ethereum take a stake in Bitcoin. Like that's a new thing. Like that doesn't exist. And um, I think that's like one of the really cool things that's being done on Polkadot. I don't know. Do you have more, Dieter? Yeah. I, I mean, just one thing about that is basically like a portion of transaction fees from what Akala's, like from Akala's, um, uh, stablecoin protocol, which is essentially a maker-like protocol. So a portion of stability fees and, and others basically go into this decentralized soft, sovereign wealth fund. And initially, the goal is to just acquire dots until they get to some like critical mass of dots um, where kind of they think, and obviously this is somewhat subjective because of the auction process, they think this will be enough dots through staking returns that they'll be able to, you know, afford this parachain slot in perpetuity. And then they'll be kind of making more, you know, strategic investments in, you know, other protocols, probably mostly on Polkadot, at least to begin with, um, where they think it could make sense for some reason. I mean, when you think of like parallels here, one is obviously like, a nation's sovereign wealth fund, where nations who have excess wealth, instead of like putting that directly into the economy, will put that in some fund designed to grow returns and, and use that in the future. And then the second parallel um, would be how corporates deal with strategic investing. I mean, sometimes corporates will invest in other corporates, you know, if it's for some sort of um, vertically integrated reason, if they expect to use the services of those corporates down the line. Um, you know, these are kind of strategic investments. And so this is a really, really good example of where you actually see um, blockchains and, and Polkadot and, and what we're building actually kind of cross the barriers from just like decentralized applications to some mix of a, a corporation and nation state that's able to actually have its own agency. 
which I think is something that we've never seen before. So some, some computation can be sovereign and that it has no human owners. And the thing that it needs to keep running are these parachain block production slots, right? In, in some sense. The acquisition of these parachain blocks production slots is again subject to some kind of payment that these that this sovereign computation uh, can bid for. And so, so it's almost like you can have sort of a sovereign agent that can pay for its own hosting, that can own pieces of other sovereign agents. And as long as its logic is such that it keeps getting on more and more assets so that it continues to ho host itself, it can, it can go on indefinitely. That's really the future that, you know, people in the, in the cryptocurrency space have imagined for a long, long time. It's like computation that is self-owned can pay for the resources to have it executed. But once it's executed, it earns more resources and then can pay more to have it executed and it just keeps on going forever. But it's just in Polkadot, it's given like a more elegant economic substrate to to do its operation. Oh, yeah, and I, I fully agree. A, a lot of the frictions in Polkadot that come up around like parachain, particularly around parachain bonds and, and the auction process here, really come down to, and they can all be corrected by, is this Pro, do do people believe this project will add value and has this is the, is this project do they have a likelihood of succeeding and does kind of do dot holders recognize that and so i mean from that you basically get the like hopefully like the best projects out there that continue to to win these slots and and by extension continue to be able to succeed on the platform yeah cool well Guys, uh, thanks so much for coming on. It was, a, it was a pleasure to kind of talk about Polkadot again. It's exciting to see this project, you know, live and now unfolding. And I think especially all of these interesting economic experiments and experiments around like coordination. And uh, that's, I think that's the part that I'm especially excited about when it comes to Polkadot. And I think in the next... In the next few years, as this actually goes live, I think we'll, there'll be incredibly interesting uh, experiments happening on Polkadot. Yeah, thank you back. Right. I'm super excited for this too, to see how it plays out. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. It doesn't end here. There's much more to this conversation, and you can hear it by signing up for Epicenter Premium. As a premium subscriber, you'll get access to a private RSS feed where you can hear the interview debrief, which goes on for an extra 20 minutes. You'll also get exclusive access to roundtable conversations with Epicenter hosts and bonus content you won't hear anywhere else. Go to epicenter.rocks slash premium to join the community and support the podcast.